This is The Other Side Australia with Damien Curry, the new podcast for the quiet Australians. Nah, that's enough of that. It's Christmas time. This is our Christmas special. Let's have a little Christmas music. G'day and welcome to episode 16 of The Other Side Australia, uploaded Friday morning, December 11, 2020. This is our last episode for the year. We'll be taking a break and we'll be back on Friday, January 15 with episode 17. Welcome wherever you are listening, on your way to work, at the gym, doing the chores, lazing around. This is your summary of the news and views of the past week. And this is a bumper Christmas episode. It should keep you going over the break, actually, so you can stop and start if you like. Just remember to come back, please. So the big story, we will take a deep dive on China and Australia's current spat. We explain how President Xi Jinping is very different to his predecessors and what that means for how Australia should respond. And we'll learn about the wolf warrior spirit and how it's affecting China foreign policy and diplomacy. 700 Australian veterans have taken their own lives since 2001, but this past month alone, it was 11. That's what happens when you punish people for things they didn't have anything to do with. Should we have confidence in our Defence Department leaders? We'll look at that question. The Great Reset meets Sesame Street. The Muppets at the World Economic Forum have decided to involve a real Muppet in their campaign for world regulatory control, just to get into the brains of the kiddies. All that will be explained shortly. The bizarre new science fiction type ray gun technology that's been used to attack CIA spies on Australian soil. Nope, I'm not kidding. It's legit. And we will also explain that one soon. The COVID vaccine gets one step closer for Australia and the Brits start taking their first dose. Ray Rudowski will join us later with the news of a new Supreme Court lawsuit in the United States, which could force significant reforms to the country's election process. But will it help Donald Trump? And Alexandra Marshall and I ponder why taxpayers should be forced to pay for an ABC that serves only a slice of Australian society. They think diversity has to do with shades of skin colour. We argue diversity of thought is the diversity that really matters. So it's going to be a big one. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's go. Hold up, I am on my way. I'm in motion. Let's go to the ocean. Yeah, let's go outside. We can hang out on the beach with our free. Isn't that amazing in Christmas times? We'll be chilling and having a good, good time. The world just keeps getting crazier and crazier. You don't have to uh, hang out with your conspiracy theory friends anymore to get freaked out by some kooky sounding stuff. You've just got to pick up the average newspaper and read it. Some really weird stuff going on. The Great Reset, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show. Crazy, crazy from the World Economic Forum. Completely legitimate. 
You know, that's the the forum that meets every year in Davos, Switzerland. 3,000 of the world's top political and business leaders get together to talk about global issues and how we can tackle them and make a better world. And we find out that they want to do this great reset now. The COVID-19 crisis has shown us that our old systems are not fit anymore for the 21st century. In short, we need a great reset. But they've even got Grover from Sesame Street brainwashing kids about the need for a great reset now. What is a great reset anyway? What the heck is it? It's just this idea that we should create some centralized global authority that's going to some sort of board uh, of regulators within the World Economic Forum uh, under the leadership of the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, in order to perhaps, I don't know, regulate climate change and all of those things. Sounds lovely. It's going to save us all. But you just can't believe the publicity around this and the marketing and the propaganda. It's as if they are totally oblivious to the fact that half the world doesn't really think this is a great idea. Let's have a listen to Grover. Hello, everybody. It is I, your cute and adorable pal Grover, with a message for listeners of the Great Reset. Well, you are in luck because I know a thing or two about resetting. Mm-hmm. I reset my alarm clock every morning. <laughs> but you are talking about resetting the entire world. Now that is a very big job. On Sesame Street, we know that it is very important for children to learn and play every day. At first, it was hard when nobody could go to school. And I could not visit my friends like Elmo. Then we learned to have video playtime, which was a lot of fun and made us feel better. Okay, so that was Grover from Sesame Street. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm finding this all is getting as creepy as. Okay, so Matthew Wong, fellow podcaster, brilliant guy down in Melbourne, got a great show also on the Good Source platform called The People's Project, his response to the drivel that we're served up every weeknight on, from Channel 10 on The Project. Matthew's a really smart guy. Studied medicine and law, I think. He's no dope. He sat down and read the Great Reset book, the official one from the World Economic Forum, from Klaus Schwab, the man who founded the WEF, twice. He read the book twice. And then he told me that he he, he sort of said, oh, it sucks you in because it all sounds so nice. Did a podcast on it. Um, spoke to one of his, uh, his fellow podcast uh, guests. Fantastic session. I'm going to put the, uh, the link to it in the program notes. And they concluded that it all does sound rather nice, but it's creepy because the solution always seems to be setting up some central, powerful panel or group that's going to have some sort of global authority and enforcement power, which is not ideal if you're a liberal or libertarian and you want a pluralistic world with nation states that are quite different, thank you very much, doing their own thing and perhaps influencing each other to do the right thing, but generally we have some degree of sovereignty. Now, I got into such a funk, such a, a down, really depressed state, reading this twice and listening to hours and hours and hours of the World Economic Forum's podcast called The Great Reset. Do you notice their language is 
once you listen to half an hour, you think, oh my goodness, what the hell are they talking about? They have really dulled down definitions and language and they, they talk in a way that if you're not really paying attention, yeah. you won't understand what they're saying. No, well, this is the scary part. It's actually quite attractive. Mm. So if you listen to this podcast, the people in here are, are um, you know, leaders of business and, and uh, uh, but it, it really has a lot of people saying this is how we fix the problems in the world. Primarily, it's climate change, okay? The mm. Great Reset is is 75% just climate change, climate change, climate change. And it's so doomsday, you wouldn't believe it. They say things like, failing to act would equate to letting our world become meaner, more divided, more dangerous, more selfish, and simply unbearable. So to do nothing is not a viable option. So the whole narrative before you even talk about what's in the book, this is why I'm laboring this point, is that the world sucks and has been getting worse for a long time. Mm. That is so not data-based. No. Steven Pinker. Do you That's know a narrative. Is? Yeah, I know Steven Pinker. Uh, he documents so well the fact that our world is, we've never had it so good, whether it be infant mortality oh, or, yeah. or longevity of totally. our species. And he puts a lot of it to uh, free market reform. But they're talking about words like hate speech, right wing, yeah. violent extremism, disinformation, equality. Ha uh, you know all these different terms, yeah. and you've got to you've got to interpret their language not in terms of what you understand, but in terms of what you know their values are, because mm. their values aren't necessarily your values. Well, you've hit to the whole the whole point. Why I was feeling so uh, depressed with this book was not because I I thought it was terrible. That would have been better. I thought mm. it was really good. Everything yeah. I was reading in the book and everything I was listening to in the podcast, I thought was great. For example, they said things like, uh, we need to move beyond the short-term profit motive, GDP. I, I agree, because all we care about is the quarterly figures. We don't yeah. make, and I come from a long history of business career-wise, and yes, all we care about is this quarter's profit numbers and people are a third priority. We would all agree on that. And, and other things like we need to look after our environment. Yes, we need to take into account externalities. Yes. But it wasn't until I had a chat with someone and they said, look, the reason why you're feeling so shaken is because the assumptions underneath and what, they, what the ramifications are. Mm. Because they had valid criticisms of where the world is going, but every single solution was give me more power. Mm-hmm. Make a central world government. Yeah, because that is the ultimate end goal for secular humanism. It's a great discussion, Matthew Wong there, um, on the People's Project podcast, which you can check out on the Good Source platform. All right, enough about the Great Reset. You can check out Matthew's for a bit of an ups uh, Matthew's podcast for a bit of an update on that. I want to tell you about this other really weird story that's come out this week. You may have heard of a thing called the Havana Syndrome. This uh, came about after a, a group of American diplomats who were stationed in Cuba who said that they suddenly started hearing strange chirping and grating noises uh, while they were at home or in the hotels and they would have headaches and memory and hearing loss as long-term effects, having sleep difficulty for years. Some of them had become wheelchair-bound, according to a report uh, news.com. Pretty scary stuff. Now, what happened was the American government did actually decide to do a report on this, and it, it's come out, commissioned by the State Department, uh, 19 experts were brought together to do this report. And the conclusion is that the mysterious symptoms were probably 
the result of directed pulsed radio frequency energy, a type of radiation that comes out of microwaves. And there have been a number of different cases of this since, including some cases in Australia, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But this report, uh, they got the National Academy of Sciences to do it, and the Academy has said uh, that the symptoms were consistent with the effects of a directed pulsed radio frequency energy. They said that the mere consideration of such a scenario raises grave concerns about a world with disinhibited malevolent actors and new tools for causing harms to others. That's what committee chair David Rollman wrote. Now, the report wasn't able to completely rule out other potential causes, according to news.com, but the report did say that an RF attack was, a radio frequency attack, was the most plausible explanation. Now, back in October, there was a senior CIA official uh, who was whose story was covered in GQ magazine. Uh, he said that he woke up in his Moscow hotel room at the end of 2017 and felt like he was going to throw up and pass out at the same time. Um, and, he, and he's had ongoing symptoms since, consistent with those described by other people who've suffered this so-called Havana syndrome, usually uh, CIA agents. Now, all of this follows uh, news that you might have missed. I missed it back in late October uh, of reports of this being used in Australia. But apparently two men were in Australia holding talks with ASIO and other intelligence agencies under the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance that we have with the US, the UK, Canada and New Zealand. And in autumn 2019, these two top CIA officials travelled to Australia to meet with officials at ASIO. And while they were in their hotel rooms in Australia, we don't know exactly where, both of them felt this strange sound, the pressure in their heads, the ringing in their ears, and they became nauseous and dizzy. Now, this was all written up in, uh, in the GQ magazine report called The Mystery of the Immaculate Concussion. So there you go. Microwave weapons attacking spies, and it's happening right here on Australian soil. You couldn't make this stuff up. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> what a world we live in right now. And as I said, you don't need to go conspiracy theorists for this stuff. It's all there in the daily news. Coming up next, the COVID vaccine update and how should we handle China? What every Aussie needs to know about our northern superpower, part two. And later on, the SAS rebellion against the Defence Department bureaucrats, how the spectre of the Brereton report is causing our already struggling vets to suffer even more, and the ridiculous decisions by our Defence Force chief to punish the many for the sins of just a few. On the COVID-19 vaccine front this week, the vaccine that Australia's focused on is the one from Oxford Uni and the big pharma company AstraZeneca. In a peer review that came out this week, the vaccine has been shown to be safe and effective. It's now with the UK regulator for approval. And once it gets the nod with the Brits, our Therapeutic Goods Administration will follow suit and 3.8 million doses will be delivered to us in the new year. After that, Another 30 million doses will be manufactured right here in Australia by CSL. 
This particular vaccine requires people to take two shots. Interestingly, it seems to be most effective if you get the first dose at half strength. Research showed that it made 90% effective if you do it that way uh, versus 62% effective if you get two doses at full strength. Researchers reported in the medical journal The Lancet that the Oxford vaccine is safe and effective. But this is the one that had a pause in the trial because of an adverse event on September the 9th when a volunteer got spinal myelitis. The immune system mistakenly attacks and damages myelin in the spinal cord with that illness. The patient's okay and the reaction could have been due to something else. There were nearly 24,000 volunteers given the vaccine and only three had a reaction believed to be caused by the jab itself and the other two were quite mild. Britain has been rolling out the Pfizer drug company's vaccine for the first time this week. As we told you last week, that vaccine is also a two-jab protocol and it's about 95% effective. The Queen and Prince Philip are going to get it within a few weeks because of their age. She's 94, Philip's 99. In Britain, they're going to do some trials which will mix and match the Pfizer vaccine with the AstraZeneca one to see if they complement each other and one jab of each gets an even bigger immune response. But the World Health Organization says the vaccine shouldn't make us complacent on social distancing and hand washing and mask wearing. Vaccination will add a major powerful tool to the kit that we have, but by themselves they will not do the job, says the WHO's Dr. Ryan. The pandemic is not over, they say, with the virus still spreading fast and putting enormous pressure on hospitals and health workers. Well, the trade war with China continues to heat up. Here is your update on the week. So we've now got a 212% tariff on Australian wine that affects $1.3 billion worth of our wine exports. We've got an 80% tariff on barley exports, which affects $600 million worth of goods. A billion dollars of Aussie coal is being held up in ships off China's coast. And our $700 million lobster trade ahead of banquet season in China has also been stopped. And China buys a quarter of our beef every year for around $2.8 billion. So far, only some producers have been targeted there. Most recently, lamb export licenses have also been targeted. And China is using COVID as a very poor excuse for all of that. Well, our trade minister, Simon Birmingham, has accused Beijing of undermining the letter and spirit of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, CHAFTA, and China's obligations under the World Trade Organization rules. Minister Birmingham made this speech in Parliament Wednesday. In view of the Australian government, the targeted nature of Chinese government measures on Australian goods raises concerns about China's adherence to the letter and spirit of both its CHAFTA and its WTO obligations. Australia has raised these concerns with Chinese officials on multiple occasions in both Canberra and in Beijing, and has asked the Chinese government to engage on these matters at officials and ministerial levels. The Chinese government has consistently spoken about its commitment to open trade and the multilateral trading system, as well as to its free trade agreements, including CHAFTA. All WTO members are expected to conduct their trading relationships in a manner consistent with their international obligations. We have raised our concerns about the Chinese government's measures in the WTO, including most recently 
at the 25 November 2020 meeting of the WTO Committee on Trade in Goods. The Australian Meat Industry Council Chief Executive Patrick Hutchinson told the Australian newspaper that normal dialogue between Australian producers and their Chinese partners had completely ceased, that it was a suspend first, ask questions later approach that China was taking. Meanwhile, our Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne spoke to her British counterpart, Dominic Raab, about China's ongoing campaign against Australia. Mr Raab tweeted after their meeting that the UK stands with Australia to protect our shared interests and values. One big beneficiary of all this? The USA, because they're getting increased orders to fill the gap. Nice move, China, trying to drive a wedge between us and our biggest ally. I do hope America pushes back a bit and supports our interests and their interests in the Pacific region. We need to remember that Xi Jinping, the Chinese president since 2013, is nothing like his reformist predecessors. He's more of a Leninist, like the old Chairman Mao, than anyone since. The Communist Party had become corrupt as China had opened up economically to the world. The public were grumbling and party elders weren't happy. Xi started his reign with a popular corruption clean-out, which conveniently also got rid of most of his political opponents from within the party. Early discontent with him was quickly put down. And he's now really consolidated his power, and he's even abolished the 10-year term limit for presidents. He has his own version of Mao's little red book, too. It's called Thought on Socialism with Chinese Characteristics for a New Era. Rowan Kallick from Griffith University's Asia Institute, writing in The Australian this week, said that the new era is one in which China's rulers can go it alone and feel they have enough economic heft enough military might, and enough ultra-modern infrastructure and robust institutions to do so. And something else has been happening in China at the same time. The country's average 7% a year GDP growth is starting to slow down. It's been trying to build up and rely more on its own domestic market for its goods than export markets, making its economy more self-sufficient. But growth is slowing. And she needs to build his popularity at home in some other way. And what better way than by pushing internationally for global influence and respect? Mr. Kallick points to two examples of this. The first was the Foreign Minister Wang Li's speech a year ago, in which he said that Chinese diplomats should imbibe a fighting spirit. The second example is the popular Wolf Warrior film series. In these movies, China's military rescue African and Chinese aid workers from evil Western mercenaries. And just in case the kids at home miss the symbolism, the film ends with a close-up of a China passport and the message, Citizens of the People's Republic of China, when you encounter danger in foreign lands, don't give up. Remember that behind you stands a strong mother country. Broke into my... Old English newsreel, voiceover voice there, sorry. Uh, the South China Morning Post used to be the best newspaper in Asia. It's an English language daily paper that's been produced in Hong Kong almost forever. 
It's sadly become more pro-Beijing recently because it has to for obvious reasons. But there are still glimmers of independence in its writing because the newspaper owners know that it'll tank if it starts to sound like a propaganda paper from mainland China. Anyway, there's an interesting piece on the Australia-China tensions written by Zhao Xin, one of the top political economic journalists at the South China Morning Post. He's previously worked for Reuters and Bloomberg in Beijing, and I just want to share some of his article with you. I want to share it because it's a great insight into what's going on on the China side of all this. Zhao writes that there was a speech given this week by the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, Le Yucheng, at a forum in Beijing, which commentators are saying might be one of the most important references for gauging the guiding principle of future Chinese diplomacy. For a long time, China's been talking about a wolf-warrior approach to international relations, and a lot of analysts and experts, including scholars within China, reckon that Beijing's diplomacy is sometimes way too confrontational to be constructive. Zhao writes, quote, There must be more sophisticated ways to engage than yelling at each other in the public domain. The argument often goes that if China wants to win respect in the international community, Chinese diplomats must be, well, more diplomatic. As such, the recent quarrel with Canberra seems unnecessary. Zhao then goes on to quote Ren Yi, a popular online columnist in China, who wrote that it is unwise for Beijing to quarrel with Canberra over the tweeting of the very offensive fake picture involving an Australian soldier in Afghanistan. He said China should seek to de-escalate tensions. But unfortunately, Zhao says in his article that there are growing signs that this is no longer in line with what Beijing is thinking. The Vice Foreign Affairs Minister Le didn't specifically mention Australia in his speech, but he flat out rejected that there was something wrong with Beijing's approach. Zhao says that, quote, This implies that China will be less tolerant of criticism, targeting its political system, its values, and its interpretation of concepts such as human rights. And this is the important bit, quote, That through Australia, China is setting the record straight there will be consequences for offending Beijing. So basically, we are being used as guinea pigs, in a sense, to send a message to other countries, especially smaller countries in the region and the Pacific and Africa and all other places where China wants to exert its power. If it can be seen to bully a rich, mid-sized Western nation like Australia and get an effective result, then it'll send a strong signal to smaller nations that they better do what Beijing says, or else. To quote Zhao's article, Behind the hardened stance is a perception that China is on an unstoppable trajectory to become a superpower with a different political system and set of values than the US-led liberal democracies. China has no room to step back from its defined core interests, and China's softness will no longer buy any goodwill. Therefore, for Beijing... If a powerful China cannot be loved, it must be feared. When Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison protested the tweet, he may have expected Beijing to delete the post, apologise or even discipline Zhao. Beijing's real response, of course, was the opposite and very telling, end quote. And this is why all of this is so important and America shouldn't be too happy about getting extra export orders to fill the Australian gap. 
The US and our European allies have a major vested interest in this because it's not just China punishing Australia. It's China sending a message to everyone. And we can't let that message succeed. Got some great news. The Other Side Australia is very happy to now be one of the shows available on the Good Source Network. The Good Source, spelt S-A-U-C-E dot news, is an Australian platform for right-thinking podcasts and vlogs. When I moved back to Australia early this year after spending almost 20 years in Asia, I was shocked at how journalism had changed since the late 90s when I was on Channel 10. Like America, Australia's broadcast media was becoming very editorialised and political. But unlike America, it seemed only one ideological viewpoint dominated, the left, with only a couple of notable exceptions. The Good Source is a right-thinking website bringing some truth and balance to the Aussie media echo chamber. Good Source is the first conservative source of videos and podcasts like mine by so many independent voices from around the country, from classical liberals like me to libertarians and conservatives. We agree and we disagree, but we at least bring the other side of the conversation to the table. That's Good Source, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Okay, we'll move on from China in a sec. We have uh, Ali Melly joining us to talk about ABC funding and the moves by Labor to force an inquiry into right-wing extremism in Australia. Not our country's biggest problem at the moment, but anyway. And Ray Radowski will join us later with all the news on Trump and the legal challenges to bring you up to speed there. And he's got a doozy, which made even sceptical old me sit up and pay attention So we'll get to that. But before we leave the China threat story, I've got to share this. There's been a shocking video of a very senior, well-connected Chinese academic doing the rounds on social media in America. It was doing the rounds in social media in China, but it got banned. America's number one cable news show, Tucker Carlson Tonight, aired it this week. Here's Tucker, and I'll do the reading of the English subtitles for you. Di Dongsheng works at Renmin University in Beijing. He is also, like so many in academia in China, a servant of his country's government. This video was deleted from Chinese social media soon after being uploaded, and there's a reason for that, as you'll see. The Trump administration is in a trade war with us. So why can't we fix the Trump administration? Why between 1992 and 2016... Did China and the U.S. used to be able to settle all kind of differences? No matter what kind of crises we faced, things were solved in no time. We fixed everything in two months. Why? I'm going to throw something maybe a little bit explosive out here. It's just because we have people at the top. At the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. We have our old friends. What he just said, what you just read on the screen, tells the story. This is as close to a smoking gun as we have ever seen. Quote, we have people at the top of America's core inner circle of power and influence. The Obama administration was easy to manipulate, he suggests. They helped. The Chinese had many friends among the Obama people. The problem came when Donald Trump was elected. After that, he says, everything changed. Since the 1970s, he said, and he's an economics professor, you should know, Wall Street has had enormous influence over the way the United States government operates over American policy. The Chinese government, he says, 
has enormous influence on Wall Street. And that arrangement worked very well for a long time. Then Donald Trump unexpectedly was elected in 2016, and Wall Street was infuriated. Wall Street can't fix Trump, he said, but they tried. And this solves the mystery, because so many are on the take, in effect. Donald Trump was an impediment to this very lucrative arrangement. And for that reason, Di Zhongsheng explains in the video, America's most powerful elites, and he calls them that, got to work on electing a new president. But now we're seeing Biden was elected. The traditional elite, the political elite, the establishment, they're very close to Wall Street. So you see that, right? Trump has been saying that Biden's son has some sort of global foundation. Have you noticed that? Who helped him, Biden's son, build the foundations? Got it? There are a lot of deals. Oh, Donald Trump, he notes. Donald Trump has complained about Hunter Biden and his ties to the Chinese government. Those are real, he just confirms. So now you know why you weren't allowed to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. Why big business aligned as one, the tech companies and the rest, to suppress that story. Because they were implicated in it. Tucker Carlson there on his uh, nightly Fox News show, Tucker Carlson Tonight. Remember to follow us on YouTube by actually clicking the subscribe button and the like button. It's free and it'll keep you notified of when new episodes come up. You can search us up as The Other Side Australia on YouTube. Remember the Australia. Or check out the Good Source channel. That's S-A-U-C-E. Uh, and you'll find all the other great shows on that platform too. If you're a podcast person, we're on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Lots more podcast uh, platforms as well, so please do subscribe. And join our Facebook page. Everybody should join our Facebook page. We update a lot on there. Um, We upload the podcast every Friday morning on there as well, as we do everywhere. It's always ready for your commute to work or gym workout or walk in the woods or housework on Friday morning, and we will get you up to speed uh, for the weekend and the week ahead if you want to listen over the weekend. Sleigh bells ringing, diamonds blinging, carols singing, famous season. Sleigh bells ringing. Coming up next, Aussie soldiers under friendly fire. The tragic toll the allegations of murder in Afghanistan is having on our veterans who had nothing to do with it. And why government bureaucratic policy bungling may be having lethal consequences. And later, Ray Rudowski explains the legal action in the U.S. Supreme Court that could change the U.S. election system forever. But will it change the election result for 2020? Don't go away. And remember to subscribe for free by clicking the subscribe button on your favourite platform. Well, we want to keep the show pretty cheery this week because it is our last one before Christmas. It's holiday season. But there are some serious things going on that we do have to address. One of them that we've got to talk about is our crisis within our defence forces at a time when we need our defence forces to be stronger than ever. The chief of the defence force, Angus Campbell, is no doubt under a lot of pressure following the big report that revealed those hideous allegations of murder by a small group of SAS soldiers in Afghanistan. These 39 alleged incidents 
of what appear to be unlawful killings of unarmed prisoners and civilians, if proven in court, are inexcusable, and they're a disgrace to the SAS and the ADF and the nation. We need to get to the bottom of why they happened. We need to get to the bottom of the cultural environment that enabled that kind of psychology to take hold in such a you know sizable group of people. And we need to work out how to prevent that in the future. But all of that doesn't excuse the Defence Force Chief's bizarre decision to go ahead and tar all of our great and noble SAS soldiers, including those who gave their lives for our freedom, tar them with the same brush by announcing that up to 3,000 soldiers would be stripped of a meritorious unit citation. The government expressed concern over that plan straight away, and it seems like it's going to be walked back. I certainly hope so. General Campbell's argument and thinking was wrong, in my view. He said that soldiers who served in Afghanistan around the same time of those alleged murders should be stripped of their awards because the collective award wasn't sustainable because the number of allegations of that existed in that Brereton report. Well, what he's basically saying, if what we know of the report is true, is that because around 20 soldiers, just 20, allegedly, and I stress allegedly, because they haven't had their day in court yet, and they shouldn't be denied the presumption of innocence either, because they acted with gross dishonour, all 3,000 should suffer a kind of collective punishment by association? No, they shouldn't. That isn't okay. And if my outrage sounds a little strong, it's because of the effect it's having on the 3,000 and the families of those of the 3,000 who are no longer with us because they gave their lives for our freedom. There have been 700 suicides of veterans since 2001. That's an average of around three every month. But not this past month. This past month, it was 11. Someone who works really closely with the families and the veterans suffering from the effects of their service is prominent Special Forces veteran Heston Russell. Heston Russell spoke to the media earlier this week. I call on the government here and now to help the Australian public and the military to move forward from this investigation that was seven years ago allow those who have to answer for any alleged crimes to do so, but now to support our veterans, our families, and now having shown that they spent over the last six months premeditating actions without supporting them, it's unexcusable. They have lost my trust and they have lost the trust of so many veterans and their families. Those accused of the 39 alleged murders of Afghan civilians and prisoners of war Shouldn't those soldiers have lost their trust too? When they are proven to have done so, they will have lost my trust. Again, why are we making decisions here and now on credible information and not allowing due process? Can we please have these conversations when we actually have facts proven through the legal process and not opinions? I was there on the ground. I do not see these things. If any of you here were on the ground and saw them, please feel free to speak up. Otherwise, let's allow the process to do what it's been designed to do under our democratic system. Prominent Special Forces veteran Heston Russell there. Now, all of this has quite significant implications. 
it's dangerous, not just for those struggling with mental illness as a result of their service, but it's dangerous for the nation. Because if this is how we treat our best and bravest and those who died for us, what kind of message does it send to those who might want to serve in the future? And what about the children of the 20 fallen veterans who this Christmas, as in perhaps previous Christmases, look to those medals as a symbol of the honour and respect and the sacrifice that was made by their father and that helps them grieve and get through every Christmas without their father. To extend the suffering to 3,000 other people who had nothing to do with these allegations that are still as yet not proven is ridiculous. It sounds like the work of detached desk jockey bureaucrats. And there's too many of those in our governments in Australia. But I didn't serve. So let's hear more from the guy who did. Special Forces veteran Heston Russell. I believe that these allegations are shocking and have to be now passed on to criminal investigation. But isn't it the case that the, the whole unit doesn't go on trial, individuals go on trial? The Brereton report was looking at the behaviour of the whole unit and that's what it's judged in the Brereton report. That doesn't need to go to a trial. That's judged by defence, isn't it? So the Brereton report is judging the behaviour of a unit seven years ago as at the last report. Right here and now, the unit, including two squadron and 3,000 Special Forces personnel, are being judged on actions and opinions of culture from seven years ago. How do you do that? I don't know. A report has gone on for four and a half years. I'm looking forward to that report being pushed forward to the Office of the Special Investigator. I was there as a part of that culture. I saw warrior culture that saved lives. I also saw uh, situations that were beyond any comprehension. I can't make the decisions for everyone who was there. I can just talk to my own lived, lived experience. And as an Australian, stand here, ask for due process to be afforded. So basically, these citations being taken away wasn't the only ingenious idea from the Defence Ministry. They also decided to completely disband the SAS Regiment's 2 Squadron. Why? This is just an operationally pointless act. It's only symbolic. And it's only going to cause pain to all the good men who served in that regiment throughout history. What, what are we trying to do here? Is this some PR thing being run by the PR department or the Defence Department? They think if they do all these symbolic, silly things, it's going to have a positive effect? I don't think it's going to have a positive effect. I think it's going to backfire hideously. It's some of the worst crisis PR I've ever seen in my life, tactically. After a bit of a wobble, she thought she was going to maybe turn, turn this around, uh, the Defence Minister, Senator Linda Reynolds, came out on Thursday afternoon and said, no, 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 we're going to go ahead and uh, with that disbandment. Unbelievable. Heston Russell himself is a former 2nd Commando Regiment officer. And he told those reporters back on Tuesday that 60 of his fellow SASR members had threatened to put in discharge papers threatened to resign in protest. So what you're seeing is soldiers and officers who have lost the trust of their senior commanders. We are talking about soldiers and officers who served in the unit during the six-year period, during the Special Operations Task Group. Two Squadron has been around since the 1960s. I'm getting calls from Vietnam veterans, Borneo veterans, Confrontasi and Iraq veterans. They are in outrage. 60% of the current unit never even deployed to Afghanistan, and they're all being collectively punished. They are being outraged by the values that are being demonstrated in collective punishment, in people being punished who weren't there, in people who served, fought under that insignia to have it removed and stripped from an already volatile mental health crisis situation that we are currently in. 
they are putting in their discharge because they have lost trust that the government will have their back if they ask them to go overseas again and risk their lives. Well, what about the trust of Australians in, in these 60 to 65 um, SASR people? I mean, how, how can we trust them to follow orders now? Well, all that I know, with over the 70,000 Australians who joined our petition for this citation alone and the 100,000 more who are contacting and emailing us, that they have the trust of the Australian people and the Australians have the trust of our government to allow them to be afforded the due process and to be proven guilty. They are innocent until proven guilty. Have you spoken, have you spoken to any of the accused? Um, if so, and Jackie as well, what's their mental health like at the moment? What are they telling you? And also, um, you said that those soldiers have lost the trust in the leadership. What does that mean for the Chief of the Defence Force? And is his position tenable right now? I'll answer the second half, then I'll pass over to Senator Lambie. So I have lost trust in the Chief of the Defence Force and the Chief of Army. Behind closed doors and being informed by the defence public, I am hearing what is going on. I am hearing of soldiers receiving disciplinary and administrative action for commenting and liking Facebook posts expressing their opinion. Directives being pushed down through the defence force, preventing any defence person from speaking out. Actions being taken against associations who are stepping up to support their members, who are suffering the mental health scars of some of these decisions being made, and a lack of care being afforded to any uh, past serving veterans and their families through decisions that have now been premeditated. I have lost their faith. Many other veterans have. They would be here speaking up if they could, but they cannot. That's where we're at. That's SAS veteran Heston Russell there. Another critic of the government's handling of all of this is um, David Flint, Professor David Flint, the preeminent pre uh, Australian legal academic. Professor Flint uh, does a show called Take Back Your Country, which is also on the Good Source platform, along with our show, The Other Side. So I enjoy listening to Professor Flint, and he had some pretty strong views on his podcast this week about all of this and the way the government's been handling things. By publishing the Brereton Report, even with the names hidden, meant that everybody, everybody in this case was assumed to be guilty. And the reactions have been predictable. The Australian people have been outraged, not only by the way in which the presumption of innocence has been disregarded, but especially in relation to the imposition of collective punishment against all those who served in given units, including those who died under the flag. The reaction of the communists was predictable, and the government should have known it would be predictable. Handing out a report like that, sending it around the world, would only do damage to the reputation of Australia. And of course, the communists decided to take advantage of this, and they took advantage by that outrageous post on Twitter, and Twitter left that there, unlike the way in which they remove things, for example, the allegations concerning Hunter Biden and the Biden family in the New York Post. The communists will only laugh at our out outrage. And this was all predictable. The government should have known this was going to happen. We're caught in the situation because of the naivete of those who should be providing foresight and leadership. That's Professor David Flint speaking on his podcast, also on the Good Source platform. Do check it out. It's called Take Back Your Country.
In a moment, popular millennial vlogger Sydney Watson takes aim at the destruction of masculinity and the feminization of men as Harry Styles wiggles his way into another dress. And Alexandra Marshall helps me ponder the big question. In an internet age, do we need to spend a billion dollars of taxpayers' money on public broadcasting? This craziness of punishing groups of people based on their identity for the actions of a few people within that group is really reminiscent of the way that we look at toxic masculinity in our society or this concept of toxic masculinity. Australian-American millennial social commentator Sidney Watson has released a new video this week on the destruction of masculinity and the feminization of men. All of this is in response to the photos of singer Harry Styles in a dress on the cover of Vogue magazine recently. Now, you may think, especially if my libertarian audience, that uh, people should be allowed to wear whatever they like, and Scotsmen have been wearing kilts forever, and many other cultures have clothing for men that are not pants. It can be quite comfortable. So why the big fuss? Why are all these right-wing nutjobs so upset the lefties bleat? Well, conservative US commentator Candace Owens tweeted that, quote, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this, but in the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It's an outright attack, she writes. So if you think Harry Styles in a dress on the cover of Vogue is a harmless gesture of an enlightened, open-minded society exploring self-expression and artistic flair, you're partly right, but you're also missing a big part of the point and some of what's going on here. This is another blow in the culture wars from the critical gender theory crowd. It's a win for them in the public arena. Here's Aussie-American commentator Sidney Watson. In early 2019, the American Psychological Association issued its first ever guidelines for practice with men and boys. Its primary message claimed that traditional masculinity, such as stoicism, competitiveness, dominance and aggression, is, on the whole, harmful. And honestly, these characteristics are now genuinely viewed as toxic masculinity across the board. And this is viewed as the path to violence and sexual harassment. And traditional masculinity is the gateway to get there. With this intense scrutiny on men all the time, even for innocuous behavior, it's really no wonder that men would want to separate and distance themselves from traditional manhood. Feminism even the playing field in almost all areas. Women can have sex like men, earn money like men, dress like men. And despite what feminist literature might tell you about equality, women have never been more equal. The problem is that nobody has really attempted to expand the purpose of men and uplift them in the same way. And why would they? What allegedly started off as a movement for equality, which it isn't, instead has become laser focused on the patriarchy and eliminating inherent flaws in our male-orientated society and its effect on women. What's even more interesting is that the same masculine traits society seems to want to eliminate in men seem to be the same ones we celebrate in women. That sense of drive, purposefulness, aggression, and leadership. In 2015, Dr. Warren Farrell gave a TED talk about what he calls the boy crisis. 
Before age nine, girls and boys committed suicide equally. Age 10 to 14, twice the amount for boys. 15 to 19, four times the amount. Age 20 to 24, six times the amount for boys. Now, in saying everything that I've said, I want to be clear that there is actually nothing wrong with being a man who is not the perfect picture of traditional masculinity. Not everyone can be he-man, and that's okay. However, shaming men who do fit this mold, whether that be entirely or partly, is having, in my opinion, entirely detrimental effects on society as a whole. Unequivocally, there is a significant value in strong masculine men. These are builders, leaders, protectors, soldiers in our society who complement women and make up for the things that we simply can't do. And there's nothing wrong with that. There never has been. We need masculine men. We need the gunslinger. And shaming them and feminizing them out of existence has certainly not helped us so far, and it absolutely won't help us in the future. And that's Aussie-American millennial social commentator Sydney Watson in her latest video, which is up on YouTube now, if you want to check out the whole thing. I thought one of the commentators on her video uh, put it really well when he wrote, as a libertarian... I don't care what people wear as individuals. My issue is that it's a cultural Marxist agenda aggressively pushing it. Don't go away. Alexandra Marshall, our very own Ellie Melly, takes a swipe at Labor's calls for an inquiry into right-wing extremism. And Ray Rudowski, our man on North America, will tell us about the latest in Trump and the Republicans' legal battles against the election process. And for the very last time in 2020, saying goodbye to this revolting year, welcome to Alexandra Marshall, the Queen of Australian Libertarian and Classical Liberal and Conservative Twitter. Alexandra, thanks for joining us again. Well, hello, Damien. And yes, this is goodbye to 2020 and hello to 2021. And which I think we've got scheduled several apocalypses for next year and oh, one great. alien invasion. Is that correct? Excellent. I'm not sure. We'll have to check. We'll have to check on I that. I think there's an asteroid coming, actually. Well, that was probably, the promise. Probably put my rage into perspective. But I, uh, I'm a little annoyed by the news that uh, this week that the ABC is going to get even more money. But I was a little relieved to see that that money was not coming from taxpayers. It's going to come from Google and Facebook because the ABC and SBS are going to be included now in the mandatory news code. That's the, the new code that's going to force Google and Facebook and all other social media channels to actually pay news outlets and pay, uh, pay the, the, the news companies uh, for their content. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a complicated story, but ABC and SBS weren't going to be involved and included in that. It was just going to be for the private sector news providers. Uh, but... Uh, Josh Frydenberg has changed it and put the ABC and the SBS, SBS in as well. So they will be getting a slice of the pie to add to their already $1 billion budget. Or I think um, Evan Mulholland said in The Spectator last week that it was $1.2 billion now. Um, what's your take on all this, Ellen? You missed the point entirely, Damien. And that is, why are we paying for the ABC at all, considering it is in breach of its charter, which is the excuse that it uses to take money from the taxpayer in the first place. 
Well, people like the ABC, don't they? I mean, there's a it provides services to the country that that, that I know a lot of conservative voters like. Uh, it has well, okay. If if that's the case, Damien, let's test it. Let's make it a voluntary subscription like they did in, in the UK, where the BBC is now voluntary, and let's watch how many people unsubscribe from this left wing political. Uh, propaganda arm of the Labor Party and the Greens. And if it's anything like the UK, the love for the ABC will not translate into physical dollars once people get to choose whether or not they fund this entity. And I and I can assure you they'll lose half their subscriptions overnight. And it'll do them good to have to compete for people's attention and dollar because the way they've gone off charter is disgusting and they haven't it's not like it's a one-off offense these guys have been so far off charter for 20 30 years it's a complete joke yeah look i just keep coming back to the notion that it's not okay to sort of measure how many times we mention the liberal national party and how many times we mention the labor party or how much airtime we give to lmp politicians and how much airtime we give to labor politicians the bias in the abc runs deep it's cultural it's deep 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 in the culture of the organisation. And I assure you that if you polled the journalists at the ABC about their voting secretly, there would be no question, if you could do that, if it was legal to do it, there would be no question that 90% would be Labor or Green voters. I have You don't no even need doubt. to poll them, Damien. You can go and have a look at who they are married to, where they worked before. Uh, someone, uh, Some industrious person online did a whole list and you can see how they're related to the Labor Party. Uh, all the journalists and the programs, but you're right. It's not just a mention uh, or like a, a measure of how many times particular words are mentioned. It's got to be contextualized. And the ABC, a perfect example would be a panel for Q&A that the ABC set up where they might invite your token conservative under duress, I might add, but they set them up as a sort of like a caged animal to hurl abuse at for the hour. It's not an attempt at a, at a discussion or in any way a measured uh, political panel. It's just a system of abuse, and it's very much targeted toward and laughing at half of the Australian population. Now, that is not what they were set up to do. They've, that's not what they are taking our money for. So if they can't behave themselves, then they should be punished like they were at the BBC. Um, but you did mention uh, the art, uh, Evan Mulholland's article in The Spectator, and it touched on this whole uh, this bigger conversation regarding Google and Facebook and the dollars related to social media companies. Yeah. Now, there's another article in the Daily Mail of all places which is discussing the objections are being raised to it because the claim from the government is that, well, Google and Facebook facilitate an enormous user base and eyeballs, which translates yeah. to marketing dollars. And the media network's like, oh, but, you know, we, you shouldn't be allowed to count that. And you're going, guys. Of course you should. You did not invest your money and dollars into a, a worldwide search engine and social media company. Like it or not, that was done by Facebook and Google. And you're, if you were just a media company on your own website, you would not have access to a worldwide audience because you didn't pay for it. So just to summarize that, Google is Google's saying we're not 
um, opposed to some kind of deal. We just want it to be a fair deal. And they're saying that, you know, yes, there has to be this a little bit of to and fro. There has to be a little bit of money coming back the other way because they've established this platform. And I actually, yeah, I support that idea too. I think that's a reasonable balance. It's not um, even money back. They're not even demanding money. They're just saying that when the equation goes in for how much money Google and Facebook should pay, yes, that there's that an acknowledgement yeah. that it is a, it's a symbiotic relationship, which it completely is. Yeah, and they're not acknowledging that at all in the current form of the code. Uh, so the government is, but media organisations like Nine are going, oh, no, we, we, we are superior. We shouldn't have to acknowledge that. And you're like, guys, you got you got to well, wake up to yourselves. You would expect them to push their case as far as they possibly can in good negotiation style, and I'm sure some happy medium um, will be reached. What I'm hoping is that uh, the intention of Josh Frydenberg here is not to line the ABC's pockets further to make them even more difficult to fight against at an election, um, thereby almost ensuring that Labor will win the next election. Um, I hope that Josh Frydenberg is doing this because he believes that it will enable him to cut the public budget of the oh, ABC. Oh, you know he's not doing it right. You know they're just going to give the money straight to the ABC. And so not only will they – what it should be, as you quite rightly say, is a, a budget for the ABC. And if they earn money through Facebook, it should be taken uh, – deducted from their public funding. And given back uh, to taxpayers. Account. What will cost exactly. it should be? It should be a single amount that they're allowed to have spent on them. Why uh, would he not be doing that? You're saying is – You know it won't be. Why? Of course it will be. No, because the ABC will be like – oh. Oh, we earn that money, therefore we should have it. Like, no, you're a, you're a, you're run by the taxpayers, and oh, you get given God. a set amount to run it, and that's it. But okay, they won't which, which is the problem with anything that's government run? There is no incentive for any government organisation to ever say, you know what, we can be more efficient. We can run oh, more have efficiently. Have you ever heard that? No, have you ever heard I we think can be we'll give back some of our budget and be more efficient. No way. You know, you never get that. And It'll just go as a surplus on the salaries of people who are already paid far too much cash. And who gave themselves a pay rise when journalists are losing their jobs all over the private sector and when people are taking pay cuts and losing salaries because of COVID, etc., etc. The ABC of reporters have, had, have suffered absolutely nothing. The whole question of the ABC and SBS's existence needs to be revisited from the get-go. This is a very different world we're living in now with the internet. And the question becomes, why should a certain group of people, because that's what the ABC is, it doesn't represent a cross-section of Australia's uh, creative talent, of Australia's content producers, of Australia's writers, of Australia's journalists, of Australia's broadcasters. It represents a small group who are being funded to produce the sort of content that they want to fund and who are cross-employing other people that think like they do, as any organisation will have its own culture. That's fine. I get that. And that's why I'm a free market liberal and I don't believe there should be a public uh, broadcaster in the sense of doing political commentary or anything. I think they should just stick to facts. They should stick to governmental information services, uh, information for the country. Let's test your theory, Damien. Can you name any young conservative writer or broadcaster which the ABC has hired or given money to? Never. No, not one. I'll go halfway with you, Damien. We can let the ABC on a much reduced budget keep their news items and their radio for regional areas yep. and their weather broadcasts, but every single opinion panel and show 
must be a subscription voluntary based item and let's see if they can actually survive and i well i would i forget the prescription subscription i would sell it off and privatize it um but if you if there are certain elements of the abc that you think are worth keeping in some sort of public broadcaster uh, structure then yes let's have a subscription or sponsorship model for that like the united states pbs um, public broadcasting system yeah, and NPR, National Q- Public Radio. If you Radio. want to listen to Q&A every uh, Monday, it, it was it, is it Sunday or Monday? I don't know. I think it's Monday. If you want to listen to Q&A, then, then you've got to subscribe and you can chip in for Q&A to be in your house and the rest of us don't have to fund them. All right. So uh, another big story this week, uh, new legislation uh, in Parliament, Labor's motion calling for an inquiry into right-wing extremism. Why wouldn't we have an inquiry into left-wing extremism? So the whole thing is actually a misdirection and it's really worrying. What this is, is another attempt to censor political opposition. Because the first question you must ask is, who gets to define these things? The whole point of a democracy and democratic politics is that no one in authority is allowed to define the conversation. Ideas are buried, uh, abandoned about, politicians stand for office if they can convince the public that they've got good ideas and they get elected. You cannot tell, like, that free speech is what you are born with. It's your right. The government does not give you the right to speak or give it to you under a set of terms and conditions. That's not how it works. And so the idea that a political party can start to define what is and is not acceptable political dialogue, using itself as the measure when, for a start, these guys are sitting on the far left. This is the start of authoritarianism. This is the start of uh, one-party uh, systems. And we cannot allow even the conversation of banning politics to enter Australian political systems. It's It should be thrown out on the basis that it is unconstitutional. Now, obviously, they're concerned about violent far-right extremist groups. Um, we have terrorism laws. If anybody plots yeah. or plans terrorism, they get arrested and locked exactly. up. Exactly. That's the law. It it's doesn't matter there. if they're on the far left, the far right, or if they're just random nut jobs who have no idea what their political ideology is. That is already catered for. There is no requirement to engage in that kind of behaviour. And we certainly don't need another blooming inquiry. Let's have a look at some of the tweets on this. Very funny. The anti-feminist Beth replies, you don't really want to investigate right-wing extremism because it doesn't really exist in Australia. This is just a smokescreen for you to censor conservatives. Get in the bin, you commie. Uh, Monica Clare agrees. Yes, it's gaslighting. Guru Blessington, also one of my favourite Twitterers uh, says, by right-wing extremism, it's evident you're implying any who value their country's heritage and sovereignty and the systems, people and belief on which it rose and have no interest in globalism 101, a.k.a. the Marxist and Islamist Malthusian technocracy technocracies coup arising out of the United Nations. He's a deep thinker. I love it. Uh, Polly Bard says, I can't. Oh, I can't read Polly Bard. You naughty boy, Polly Bard. One of my, also one of my favourite people on Twitter and smartest people on Twitter is Polly Bard, but I can't read that one. That's just a bit naughty. Uh, Proud Old Soldier says, why just right-wing? Why not left-wing extremism or extremism of any type? Exactly. Um, and Spitty the Kraken Alpaca says, can you please confirm if Black Lives Matter are right-wing or left-wing extremists? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's brilliant. But my my demand and hope for conservatives is don't engage them in this discussion. Don't say 
let's go and have it for left-wing extremism. The the idea of banning political opinion should not be embraced. It should be rejected entirely. We do not want to get dragged into the uh, investigating valid political opinions. This is the game they want us to play, and we cannot play this game. It is a, it's an extremely dangerous game. We will keep an eye on this in the new year, absolutely. Yeah, I can't uh, stress that enough. <laughs> let's just have a little break over Christmas, hopefully. You have a good rest, Alexandra. You had a huge year and you really deserve it. It's um, great having you on the show and I hope you'll come back and join us throughout 2021. A rest, Damien. I'm, I'm finishing off my book for publication next year and uh, I'll be writing articles all through the summer, so keep an eye out for them. You're just full of energy. You see, it's because you're a lot. You're a lot younger than me. That's why you have a great Christmas. Not a lot, David. Have a great Christmas and a happy New Year. And uh, a Merry Christmas to you and a happy New Year as well, Damien, and to all of your listeners. Thanks, Ali. We'll see you in 2021. can hang out on the beach without freezing yeah isn't that amazing in christmas times we'll be chilling and having a good good time And joining us now, as usual, every week, Ray Rudowski, our man on North America. Ray, ho, 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 and a Merry Christmas to you. This is our last one for 2020. Ho, ho, hoping that this whole election case is going to come to some sort of conclusion and soon. But it's not over yet. Come on. It's over. You've got to see the big picture. No, you've got to see the big picture in all of this. Uh, First of all, I don't see the big picture. Come on. The U.S. Supreme Court, as we're recording this, They've just rejected a major uh, push by Trump's legal team to challenge the election result in Pennsylvania. Um, and Safe Harbor Day has passed, which you can explain You can explain what that is in a moment. But, but those two things happening together makes it impossible, doesn't it, for Trump to persuade the courts to reverse the results? Not necessarily, because what's being ignored or really what hasn't kind of captured the mainstream media imagination yet is this what i think is a huge story coming out of texas the state of texas is suing four battleground states right now and appealing to the supreme court to intervene and basically they're asking that because there was all this sort of uh, unfair voting practices and irregularities and they can't really go back and separate ballots that shouldn't have been put in there in the first place the remedy to all of this is to mandate that the states appoint the electors to the Electoral College. So the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the state of Georgia, the state of Michigan, the state of Wisconsin are the defendants. The state of Texas is the plaintiff. And this is going straight to the Supreme Court. But what's the case? What's the argument? They're making the argument that they made in Pennsylvania, that the Trump team made in Pennsylvania, that the voting irregularities are a violation of the Constitution because it created two-tier voting systems, one for those who voted in person and one for those who voted by mail. And those who voted by mail, laws were changed, various things happened, and all of that result created results that Texas argues impacted their um 
the results for them. And so as a remedy, they're asking that the Supreme Court intervene, because in this case, uh, disputes between states can only be resolved or adjudicated by the Supreme Court. They're asking that the Supreme Court come in and say, OK, we want all the state legislatures to appoint electors, which they're allowed to do if they can argue it successfully. And if that does happen, it would overturn that situation that you just talked about in Pennsylvania. And it would create a very interesting case in which the appointment of electors would be now left in the hands of the state legislatures, which are largely controlled or controlled by Republicans. These are very important cases for the other argument that Trump made this week, which is for electoral reform. And again, the argument's been made that COVID was used as an excuse by these various Democrat-run states uh, to introduce laws that were effectively going against their own state constitutions. And so as a result, this appeal to the Supreme Court could be a, a Hail Mary um, pass, you know, one of these last-ditch efforts. But it's critical that they explore every single opportunity because this is it. I mean, the future of the country is really at stake in this entire election. And it just seems like, you know, the mainstream media is ignoring all these cases without taking a deeper dive into both the legal significance and the wider political significance and the, um, the, the demonstrated need for electoral reform. And there's also a very interesting story that's um, appeared where uh, in one of these Georgia counties where there was a, um, uh, a recount taking place, there was an experiment done where they took a 100 Biden ballots and 100 Trump ballots and ran it through the Dominion vote counting system. And it ended up that there was 13 more votes for Biden which shouldn't have happened, which means yeah, that there's something really that. weird. That. that was only one machine, about... though. That was only one machine, though. Well, you've got to remember that this has been their argument all along, that there's been something about the algorithms and the way they count the votes that's been wrong or irregular, that needs oh, greater scrutiny. It's a complete mess, Ray. It's an absolute complete mess, and they've got to do something to fix it. You are absolutely right, and I 100% agree with you. Uh, that there are serious problems here that need investigating. But I think it's a really important case because, as most most things with Trump, he's come in in many ways as a disruptor, and he's held a mirror to the entire system by saying, look, this is a mess. I did not know, and this has been going on for years, that these voting systems and these voting machines had so much controversy surrounding them. Now, Ray, you've got a couple of sound clips you want to play us. Um, the first one, I think, is the Attorney General of the state of Texas talking about how he's going to sue these four other states. These elections in other states where state law was not followed as, as required by the Constitution affects my voters because these are national elections. And so if they're um, fraudulent activities or things that affect an election, and state law is not followed as, as is required by the Constitution, it affects, it affects our state. It affects every state. That was the Attorney General of Texas speaking there. And uh, the second clip, Ray, you have is from the uh, Republican Party chairman uh, in Texas, Colonel Allen West. Well, the logic is this. Under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection uh, Clause, Equal Protection Under Law, Texans are severely affected by the fact that you had unconstitutional and legal actions that were going on in four of these battleground states, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. 
What you saw happen in those states were that uh, judges, courts, and also executives taking actions to change election law. And we know that by the rule of the law, by the Constitution, anytime you want to change a law, that should be done through the legislative process. And because you had those things that happened, as well as some other voter irregularities, now we have a result of an election that does have uh, a negative effect on the people here in the great state of Texas. So what the uh, attorney general filed last night, a little bit before midnight, was a petition, a complaint from Texas based upon those facts that what has happened in those states does have an effect on the uh, citizens of Texas. And I just found out that Louisiana has joined that lawsuit and there may be some other states that will join that lawsuit. We're not asking for ballots to be thrown out. We're asking for this to go back to the legislature and the state legislators being the ones that will decide those electors, which again is constitutional by Article 2, Section 1 of the United States Constitution. Okay, that was Colonel Alan West, chairman of the Texas Republican Party. So they think they've really got a chance with this, Ray. Well, there's two things. One, obviously, they've got to fight until they've exhausted all opportunities. Otherwise, voters are going to be left with this idea of, like, does my vote really count? Does it really matter? And that's also in the context of the upcoming Georgia Senate runoff. If they don't fight till they've exhausted every possible opportunity to challenge or even overturn these um, questionable uh, situations in various states, voters are just going to literally walk away. They're never going to vote again. And that, I think, is another thing that Trump is fighting for when he went down to Georgia for that election, Senate election rally um, over the weekend that just passed. Okay, right. Thanks, mate. We're going to come back uh, in January. I think our first show in January is January the 15th, uh, Friday, January 15. But you and I will keep in touch, right, over Christmas. If anything pops up, we'll do a quick shortcut uh, and throw it out there for everyone. So keep an eye out um, because if there's any major developments between now and the 15th of January, uh, we'll be on to it. There, um, there will be, of course, the election in Georgia, which I imagine we will talk about on the 15th of January for those two final Senate seats. Uh, and of course, uh, if the Republicans don't win those, they lose control of the Senate, which is, means they have no control at any of the three major levels of government there. Ray Rudowski, happy, happy Christmas to you and yours, my friend. Have a great Christmas and a happy new year, and we'll speak soon. Well, that is it for the show this week and for this year. Remember to follow us on YouTube by actually clicking the subscribe button and the like button. Uh, It's absolutely free and it'll keep you notified of when the new episodes come up. Most importantly, the first episode of 2021, which will be on Friday, January the 15th. You can search us up on YouTube as The Other Side Australia. Remember the Australia or you won't find us. Or you can check out the Good Source platform channel on YouTube. That's S-A-U-C-E. Or just go to Google Good Source. Uh, You'll find all the other great shows on that platform too if you do that. Um, If you're a podcast person, we are on Apple. We're on Spotify, iHeartRadio, you know, all the the good uh, podcast platforms. So please do subscribe there. Tell your friends about the show. That's one of the most important things you can do to help us grow uh, and and keep going. And please join our Facebook page too. We update a lot of stuff on there. So have a great Christmas, everybody. Enjoy your time with friends and family. Make sure you relax a bit. Don't worry about politics. There's much more to life than governments. And please do come back and join us on January 15 for our first episode of 2021, which will be episode 17. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. 
and God bless.